if you don't tackle the problem of your asset declining, you will get what is known as rent gap. Welcome to the Urban Property Investor. I'm your host, Sam Saggers, here to help you crack the code of real estate wealth. Today's show, another code cracker. We're going to dig into more questions that I failed to answer last time we met on the Urban Property Investor. Yes, folks, the last show was a failure when it came to getting through the questions that have come in. What is on your mind? I'm here to conquer it. Today, we're going to tackle some more questions. We're going to repeat the show, uh, this is basically part two of last week. Uh, and yes, I have repeated things before. I actually repeated a year in school because I wanted to date a woman. How dumb is that? I went to school, I fell in love, my emotional red hat took over, and next minute, instead of enrolling in year 10, I was enrolling back in year nine just to try and date a chick. Wasted a whole goddamn year of my life. Hey, I tell you what, I think a lot of people feel like they've wasted a bit of their life with the old COVID. And of course, so many COVID conspiracies, aren't there? There's uh, so many people I know, love talking about. I am so sick of talking about the pandemic. Uh, I am sick of the news even reporting on the numbers of the pandemic. I think we all need a new approach to life. Uh, and look, I've got some mates who are doing the conspiracy thing theory and I just don't understand it. I'll be honest. They think they've been injected and now the government is spying on them via the injection. And I say to them, look, you know, your lives aren't that interesting. Like, let's face it. What do we do? We go... Uh, mountain biking, uh, Pete, you go to the bolo once a week and have a chicken schnitzel and you play golf once a month. Like, why would the government want to track that? What purpose would the government have knowing that you have a schooner at the bolo and a chicken schnitzel? Hey, thanks for everyone for uh, tuning in and watching Raffi. That is Raffi at Fuddy Duddy. He's becoming a bit of a superstar. Uh, one of his posts had like 9,000 likes. I've never uh, in my life got 9,000 likes. I put in all this effort to uh, to do podcasts and chat to people about real estate. I think the most likes I've had is about 12. It's unbelievable. Rafi is a star. Uh, hey, he might, he might become a Hollywood dog for all we know. So... Um, if you want to check out Rafi's latest adventure today while the rest of us have been working, feel free to jump on uh, Rafi Fuddy Duddy. That is his Instagram name. All right, let's crack into it. We're going to talk real estate. We're going to get back into some more questions. And I think one of the th greatest things about the market at the moment is it's headed towards the $10 trillion mark. Yes, real estate has inflated for the most part just about everywhere and the index of real estate has gone up really, really sharply 
And it's fair for the next 12 months, we're going to see a diminishing level of growth, which is good. Uh, We don't always want just high levels of growth because too much of a surge in growth uh, awakens the beast. And the beast, of course, is APRA. And uh, we have got a question come in about APRA and the serviceability changes. Uh, And I will answer that today. I hope to get to that question, but we have a few before that one. And the first question comes from Diana. Will goods and services continue to rise? Are we experiencing inflation? Well, that is a great question. And I would say anecdotally, uh, which I can't say that word, yes, we are experiencing inflation. I don't know about you, but... Um, my missus is like, I'm not shopping at Coles anymore. It's too expensive. And now for the first time in my life, I am at Aldi. I went through Aldi for one of the first times in my life the other day and got some German goat soap. Yes, some German goat soap for like 30 cents. It was amazing. I've never seen anything so cheap in my life than going to Aldi supermarket. But anecdotally, I do think things have gone up and it would seem to me that uh, when you go and shop, things are absolutely more expensive. And of course, um, what this does do is favour those that can least afford it most. And of course, if more of their household budget is stretched just buying the basics, then generally they have less money at a disposable level to circulate into the economy and if there's less velocity in the economy uh, things tend to start start to slow down but I think when it comes to real estate and obviously I think maybe the question pertains more to what is going on in real estate when it comes to uh, the cost of construction how things are evolving and I think there are a few mechanics at play here the first one is climate change around the world. Uh, A lot of the timber forests have actually burnt down of late. Uh, The 2019 bushfire absolutely devastated much of the timber industry here in Australia that provides timber for basic household goods. And of course, uh, to build homes, quite often homes are also timber framed and as such one of the big challenges is actually the cost of materials when it comes to build materials have fundamentally gone up and a lot of that also has to do with logistics at a worldwide level everything has slowed down logistically freight is actually uh sort of challenged at the moment to import things has cost more and more and more because of the cost of freight. And what is fundamentally happening is freight is filling up and a boat is going from one country to the next. And normally pre sort of pandemic world, the boat would then fill up from that country and go to another country. And because certain countries are locked down and some manufacturing is slowed down and some workplaces are now, well, you need, uh, you know, you can't have that many people at work today, all that kind of stuff. It means there's less stuff getting on boats. And a lot of boats are fundamentally traveling the seas 
with insufficient cargo. And of course, because there's insufficient cargo on the boats, that's pushing the price of the cost to deliver things up. And so we are starting to see the cost of goods coming into the country cost more. Uh, And certainly that is across all real industries at the moment. Probably the third thing we need to comprehend is the lockdowns that hopefully are a thing of the past in the vaccinated economy. Um, I don't think anyone likes a a lockdown. It creates conspiracist theorists like my mate Pete, who thinks the government's uh, controlling him at the bloody bolo. But... The, the reality is lockdowns just have met that jobs have slowed down, uh, people immigrating from state to state or region to region have slowed down. And for a lot of the skilled construction industry, you know, the fact, for example, perhaps someone in Sydney who's skilled wanted to go into Brisbane, but the state borders are shut. I mean, you've just got this kind of migration effect of people uh, people being trapped rather than being able to move. And of course, for a lot of the construction industry, uh, they were also locked down or sites have been put into a space where less people have been able to work on the site. Um, uh, A project which would normally have 300 workers is allowed 50 workers. and, And so you're starting to see the strain on the system, if you like, when it comes to what that looks like. And of course, uh, generally to make sure there is a good level of inflation, migration has been a thing for Australia. Migration economics is a real dynamic in Australian commerce. And the reason Australia likes migration is fundamentally you put more taxpayers in your system, you create a bigger overall GDP. GDP is measured per person, uh, per capita. And the idea of bringing more skill into an economy creates more uh, opportunities, more uh, opportunity for businesses to expand. Overall, it is an expansionist process that then leads to productivity growth And obviously, you get this kind of stimulating effect on economics, which is great. It's worked for a very, very long time. And no doubt, once the borders open, it will work again. And uh, we will, I think, tackle some questions around that. So how do you play this thing called real estate uh, when the real estate market is has no stock and it would seem that prices are a bit of a runaway freight train. Well, depending on uh, what you want to do in real estate, I've got some viewpoints around negotiating real estate well to beat sort of the consumer price rises. I mean, in real terms, inflation is occurring uh, overall. It's you know, in line where government wants it to be. Um, overall, it's not like at five, six, seven, eight percent, which is a bit of a runaway inflation rate. We're more seeing a three percent inflation rate, which again, if you don't understand inflation, always uh, explain it with the uh, pack of chewing gum. Uh, today, a pack of chewing gum, let's say, costs a dollar. 
if the inflation rate is 3%, that same pack of chewing gum is going to cost $1.03 next year. And if your wage doesn't grow by also the inflation rate, then it just costs more and more and more for you to circulate in the economy. Now, real estate also has an inflation rate. Typically, the build inflation hovers around 5%. So year on year, things cost around 5% more to create. And a lot of that has to do... Excuse me. Jesus. God, I just used the Lord's name in vain. My God, I'm choking. I'm choking. I tell you what I do. I have this terrible... (coughs) (coughs) Oh, Oh my God. I've got to take a note. What time is this? 12.33. I've got to cut this out. I have this terrible habit of um, eating coconut before I do uh, do videos and do podcasts. <clears throat> and then I realize the coconut's stuck in my throat and next minute I'm choking and losing my train of thought. I don't even know what we were talking about. What are we talking about? Um, all right, so uh, what were we talking about? We were talking about construction inflation. Let me... Uh, Swallow some water. Now, I am determined to get this cut out. So uh, I'll make a note as to where we are in this uh, podcast. And I'll put it in the uh, show notes so someone cuts this out. Because I don't think you want to hear me coughing. All right. So basically, the idea of inflation is that you know, things are going to cost more. And typically in the build inflation space, things do cost more. And generally, a lot of people worry about supply. But quite often, supply comes through at a more expensive rate. And if anything, continues to help lift values of real estate. Um, However, I've got some ways to avoid the inflation train when it comes to real estate. Obviously, Uh, particularly if you're looking to buy a more modern property. Now, I'm a big believer in the blend. You find more or less a character suburb, a suburb which is really nice, and you try and, uh, based on your affordability, buy something more modern in that marketplace. And the reason I like that is just you can go potentially 20, 30, 40, 50 years and own the real estate without it diminishing and you pumping it with money to inflate its value again by breathing life into it. The more modern we start at the beginning, uh, the less costs at the end. And uh, obviously, if you start with really old real estate, it can diminish to the point where it just fundamentally needs a wrecking ball. So how do I get around the inflation? Well, the first thing is, if you study real estate, is to follow landowners and land bankers. Land bankers are a great way to find real estate which has been owned for a long period of time. And if that land banking concept is part of the production of real estate, 
then quite often you can find real estate, which even if built new, is less expensive than the secondhand marketplace. I recently did a deal down in Melbourne, brand new real estate, cheaper, same size, everything, cheaper than the secondhand marketplace. How did I do that? I looked for people that owned real estate in that neighborhood as developer land bankers, and I went to them and put a deal together. Land owners or land bankers. Now, some land has been banked for 30 years. So obviously, the person who bought that land bought it at a very, very affordable rate back in a different era. They've made bucket loads of money already. And for them, they don't necessarily need to make even more money. They're happy to leave a penny on the table for the next person. And those type of deals, I really love doing. The second way to get around the kind of inflation train which is out there is the builder themselves taking a vested interest in the project. And for me, like particularly even in uh, my wealth trifecta, my property trifecta, where I do small developments, team up with um, some of my clients and we all chuck in some money and go and buy something and add value. One of the ways you can buy sites at the moment is to join venture as well with the builder and the builder, because they've got an equity participation in the project, so to speak, they quite often shave their build margin so that the deal kind of works. And again, for me, uh, this is a great way to make money in this market is to actually do business with the builder. Um, the third way is stock, which is modern, under construction, but the land was bought pre-boom and the build contract or the builder building the product had a build contract pre-boom. In other words, the build is actually priced two years ago. It is great. I'm finding stock in the modern marketplace, which is absolutely cracking. Today, you couldn't replicate that stock if you bought the land today and entered the build contract today. So there is some projects out there where if you can find them, they're money makers, they're money spinners because they were created in the pre-boom marketplace. And yeah, absolute crackers. Obviously, uh, new or modern stock, which is built in the marketplace, makes a lot of sense um, because it is also uh, fundamentally not part of the next wave of construction to come. The next one for me is scalable uh, terms. And there are a lot of, for example, businesses, which are quite often publicly listed companies, which just have scalability. And you can see it in their pricing at the moment. They've got some really, really sharp pricing compared to mum and dad, uh, property developer, basically trying to supply the marketplace. Now, as you can imagine, as I spoke about freight, uh, I actually know a little bit about freight when it comes to freight forwarding. When uh, I was a lot younger, I was buying Christmas decorations. Yes, 
I still have Christmas decorations around my house that I cannot get rid of in a deal I did years ago. Uh, The Christmas decoration market collapsed and I'm still stuck with Santas that are now sitting under my house. So I know a little bit about freight. Freight is cheaper the more containers you can fill. So the bigger the company you are, the more containers you fill, the cheaper to move the freight. So McDonald's pays a lot less for freight movement than, for example, just a one-off small um, company, right? So scalability is a thing. And and what you're saying is if you can do business with landowners, builders direct, uh, stock which is under construction under old build terms and land prices, build stock which... fundamentally comes from the old land prices and the old build contracts and scalable companies, you're finding gold at the moment. The other thing that I think is worth noting is some of the best real estate you just have to pay more for. That's the reality of life. Um, Unique, rare opportunities in the modern marketplace worth their weight in gold. Let's face it, today most people would probably be prepared to pay more for real estate if it was really, really good real estate. I think it's better to pay more for real estate if it is good real estate than buy bad real estate and get a discount. So just understand that uh, certainly from what I'm saying, some of the best pockets of our cities where there is some interesting urban transformation occurring is absolutely worth paying for because the reality is real estate is an opinion sport and if more people have a better opinion about something unique, even if it is expensive, uh, the odds are the reason it is expensive is because it is good. And so I think they're the six ways, really, the six blueprints, I call them, to navigate your way through this thing called real estate. Now, there are some negatives uh, when we look at the more modern marketplace and also the older marketplace when it comes to really the inflation of goods and services, particularly around the building industry. The first one I've kind of alluded to already is Properties which are deflating in appeal, if they're not renovated now, those renovation costs are basically also suffering huge amounts of inflation. In fact, uh, I was just speaking to one of my renovated clients and they had a price in their head that they were renovating at 2500 per metre and it's now 3500 per metre. So about a 30% increase and the builder doesn't even want the work. That's that's how uh, that market is at the moment. That small scale renovation market is it's actually more expensive than the blueprint market, where you're basically building uh, new. So, what the challenge is for a lot of people is fundamentally, if they don't tackle the renovation, they let it sit quite often the property will continue to deteriorate, but the cost to renovate continues to go up. And then you get this dichotomy of the situation where the asset is actually too expensive to renovate down the track. And of course, what tends to happen is people 
um, start to suffer from repairs and maintenance challenges and then start to dislike the asset. Uh, disinvestment is going to be a real thing, particularly as people can't tackle the renovations they would like to because of the cost blowouts. Uh, certainly, I think um, what you don't want to get burnt by is overpriced developments in the new construction sector, which are basically uh, not part of what I referred to as the six blueprints. Understanding the land, understanding the builder, understanding the contract, understanding, uh, you know, where the market is at. And the reality is a lot of stock won't even get off the ground now because it is too priced too high and the market is not stupid. It won't pay that for that asset. And so you'll see a lot of properties getting shelved in the new construction, which is an oxymoron because we need new construction to bring down the price to help with affordability, but absolutely it's not going to happen because of where the mathematics are on the future supply train of real estate. Also, I think one of the things you'll start to see into the future is the Big Mac effect. Uh, the Big Mac effect, of course, in the 1990s, you went and bought a proper Big Mac. It was the size of your head. Today, a Big Mac is like a cheeseburger. It's pretty small. And uh, real estate goes through this Big Mac effect where it shrinks. And a lot of economics does that. It's not just the property industry. I guarantee you, if you go to Coles, um, you think you're buying something which has actually shrunk. You're picking up the Vegemite and you're like, oh, it's still $4. And you're like, but it's not 300 grams anymore. It's 220. Shrinkation. Shrinkation is a skilled way industry gets around price challenges. And of course, there is a bit of shrinkation going on. And shrinkation in the wrong marketplace um, is a challenge. You know, if you're going to the edge of a city, you know, people move to the edge of the city for space. And then if you're seeing houses at 200 square meters of land, but they're 70 kilometers from the city, well, that's a problem. That's shrinkation. And the reason it's shrinking is people at the edge of the city have a limited budget. So how do you make the product work for their budget? You shrink it. And this is, again, just things we need to be quite mindful as we navigate this thing through around this thing called real estate. So look, hopefully that answered your question. I think the real challenge when it comes to supply and inflation will be rents myself. Uh, rents are going to skyrocket. You know, a lot of politicians are talking about 2 million more people coming into the country. I don't know where they're going to live. But uh, that would be incredible. And obviously, to help with industry, we're going to need people because it's not just the building industry struggling with employment at the moment. It's everyone. Uh, it's the corner shop who needs another barista. It's the restaurant that needs people back in hospitality. It's the building trade, which need more people to help build more product. And really, the one thing which is missing from this conversation is really 
the uh, half a trillion dollars which has been pumped into the economy to stimulate it, creating project after project. And the amount of work out in the economy is just incredible at the moment. So if you don't let more people in, the work won't get done. And of course, that will implode on productivity when it comes to GDP. So you can only increase your GDP as a country really through four separate systems. One is to increase your population. Two is to innovate. Three is to increase your product line or your productivity. And four is to sell natural resources. So if we have a milestone off the back of stimulus to increase productivity, we need to bring more people into the country and I guarantee you every state leader, every politician, everyone in treasury wants to pump people back into the economy. And of course, they're going to need a home. Migrants don't typically bring homes with them. And I think later in 2022, certainly early 2023, you are going to see one of the biggest rental booms Australia's ever seen. And I, I think I alluded to this last episode, the failure episode, that inequality will be the next conversation because rents are just ballooning in most marketplaces. Sydney and Melbourne got to play a bit of catch up just because uh, the Sydney and Melbourne market typically are the first places where migrants come to when they come to Australia. So uh, they certainly act as generally the first part of the puzzle, then as these alpha cities like Sydney and Melbourne become so expensive, people inside the country kind of adopt to go to feeder cities or southeast Queensland. And uh, what you'll start to see is a reversal of the rental fortunes of Sydney and Melbourne. But look, I got two properties myself uh, up in Newcastle, uh, feeder city to Sydney. I bought them uh, a while ago. I just got uh, basically a $45 rent increase on both those properties. They're, they're very similar to each other. Um, $45 per, so it's $90 uh, is, is my rent increase. I just sent my property manager um, a bottle of Penfolds something or other, uh, St. Henry's, is that what it's called? Penfolds St. Henry's? Um, to say thank you. I mean, what a great result. That's an extra, what, $4,000 a year in my pocket. Um, so some it's starting to happen, right? It's starting to happen. Certainly the regionals have, have felt it, places like Newcastle, and uh, we will start to see the cities absolutely feel it when those borders begin to open. So the inflation on what that looks like, I mean, typically Melbourne has been the beneficiary of the rent conversion for migrants and no doubt will continue to attract that kind of uh, fuel coming into the system. So I think the big big headwind for basically the rental market is actually just how much value the asset's going to balloon. I think we are going to see the typical quintessential cycle move from less capital growth to more yield growth into the future, which is uh, which is pretty exciting, I think. So uh, we've done one question. Oh my god, we've had everything happen in the last thirty minutes. I've choked. I've nearly died. Uh, and now we're going to question two. I don't even know if we're going to get to the finance question. Um, 
This question comes from William. You talk about inequality a lot, but we are yet to see inequality. Uh, what are your concerns? Okay, well, that's that's a, that's a good, good question. Um, and I think one of the challenges as to why we haven't seen much inequality is we've been blessed, right? Australia has been living in the clouds for a very long time. And if anything, as a people, we have an ego which is, uh, she'll be right, and so far, she has been right. However, uh, I think without question, without bringing everyone down, we probably need to get into the dirt a bit more when we have this conversation because a mega trend around the world is inequality. Uh, the rich are getting richer and people aren't keeping up with uh, the rich, that is for sure. The Australian middle class has definitely been split in two. And once you see this rental bonanza happen, uh, typically the people who can least afford it are not homeowners and also not property investors. They are actually the tenants of property investors. And when we see this rental boom and we start to see society start to deal with that, I think you're going to really start to walk into this conversation of inequality at a very uh, end of the market, which can least afford it most. Certainly when it comes to inequality in community, uh, absolutely. You know, I'm from Sydney. Sydney is Monaco now. Um, And I mentioned this last podcast, you know, Sydney is really divided into two Sydney, Sydney Harbour, beaches, that kind of inner west, uh, lower North Shore. And then you've got Western Sydney, two different places. And the inequality inside of Sydney, you can feel it. Uh, it is policed differently. It is, um, you know, Sydney, good Sydney, uh, the, the nice beachy Sydney and Harbour Sydney is, it's Monaco today. The amount of wealth in that part of the world would rival anywhere else in the world. So it is going to come our way. The reason I flag it all the time is I think being a property investor is not just about what happens to us today, but actually uh, almost looking into the future and trying to work out where this is all headed. And again, I think one of the biggest problems the property market faces will be government intervention into the rental market to help people who can least afford it. And I certainly think uh, what that looks like is disinvestment into the future. And probably this is one of the reasons, again, why I like more modern real estate is the future of disinvestment. Now, just think of, if you don't understand what disinvestment is, you've got to look at Uh, a real estate through what is often known as rent gap theory. Rent gap theory is just a theory where real estate falls into disinvestment. So I'll explain it. I'll do my best to explain it. It is quite visual and obviously I don't have a visual tool to pump into your earballs. But uh, the best way I understand it, the point in time you buy a property you have to go on a journey. The biggest problem for property investors is going and traveling through time. As property grows older, the actual structural 
asset diminishes. The longer you own an asset which is diminishing structurally, you fall into a category where the rents start to drop because the asset is considered less appealing as newer product comes into the marketplace. Now, if you don't tackle the problem of your asset declining, you will get what is known as rent gap. The rent gap is basically the gap between what the potential of your property is and where your property actually sits. Now, the challenge for many property investors with inequality coming into the future, if the rents don't continue to rise because the government basically says people can't afford the rent increase, the motivation for the landlord to do a $100,000 renovation is not there. When the asset falls into this category, because the landlord can't increase the yield because of inequality, the asset starts to decline and it goes into what is known as disinvestment. Now, again, if you've got the right tenants in the right part of the economy, even if you buy a property and you reinvest in it by doing a renovation during the journey of owning it, that marketplace usually has a yield which is worth the renovation. In other words, would you really go and renovate a property if it was going to cost you $150,000 to do it and your rent's only going to go up $25 a week? The short answer is no, you won't do it. And this is what a lot of landlords fall into the trap of. They fall into this zone where the diminishing return on the asset just gets lower and lower and lower. The cost to run it goes up, the cost of repairs and maintenance goes up, and it falls into disinvestment. Now, obviously, I like to coach start with a modern property. When you go into this rent gap concept where your property is less appealing, it's pretty easy to fix it up because you're just talking minor renovations, really a rejuvenation concept where you're adding you know, new carpet paint, maybe fixing up the kitchen a bit, and you're spending $40,000, but you're getting another $40,000, $50,000, $60,000, $70 a week in rent because you're in the right part of the marketplace. Now, where disinvestment becomes a real problem is if you're in a marketplace which is quite low socioeconomic to begin with, when other landlords also choose not to reinvest in the neighbourhood, then not only do you get disinvestment on your asset because you're not choosing to upgrade your asset, but as your neighbours are going through the same problem because they also don't want to upgrade their asset, the overall appeal of the suburb drops. And when a suburb drops in appeal, obviously, um, you know, it's either going to fall into this category where someone sees it as a rough diamond for future gentrification, or they will just see it as a horrible place and not a place 
to ever want to live in. And of course, as a property investor, what that leaves you as an outcome is a property which is under-rented with a huge capital cross uh, tip ticking huge capital cost ticking time bob problem with low appeal to the overall marketplace. And again, I've mentioned this stuff before. You just want to avoid this functional, obsolete marketplace. You don't want properties with roof issues, foundation issues, plumbing and wiring problems, drainage problems, uh, outdated layouts. All of that just sounds horrible when it comes to the concept of uh, of certainly the inequality marketplace. So to answer the question, uh, has inequality been a thing for the last two decades? No. Will it be a thing into the next decade? Yes. I absolutely think it will be. Um, and again, look, I'm just here to give you a briefing. You don't have to like my point of view. You don't have to agree with my point of view. You can take 10% of what I'm saying and listen to someone else and get 10% of them. And you can do 10 people and 10%. And if that forms the view for you as a property investor, that's great. Uh, I'm just here to give you a briefing. Like I said, just think of me as someone who works for you. You're the boss. Uh, I've come to give you the inequality briefing. It's my version of the world. You don't have to agree with it. Um, if I'm wrong into the future, I'm cool with that. Because at the end of the day, if uh, I help people just buy into where the more money is, that's it, that's a perfectly good rationale in, on its own accord, right? So we got another question uh, and we're plowing through the questions now. Uh, the next question comes from Damon C. Uh, geopolitical relations with China are now at an all-time low. Is the Chinese market now slipping away from Australia and is Australia going to be impacted by the Chinese property market sliding in value? Big question. Wow, there's a there's a lot in that to unpack. Geopolitical relations. The world is deglobalizing. Um, the, the reality is we went through a radical globalization movement uh, where there was a lot of interworld trade where uh, you fundamentally saw this almost like utopia version of the world where all countries will trade equally. Uh, Brexit is a real thing. The United Kingdom basically stuck the finger up at Europe. Uh, Donald Trump was the president of the United States, which is as, as strange as it comes in my world. Uh, but why he became uh, that person was a lot of people felt downtrodden in middle America and really a lot of the idea of globalization was really why he was elected because Americans don't want globalization. They want deglobalization. They want America first, right? So hence why we've, we've been through some crazy stuff, haven't we? Um, so deglobalization is now a thing and countries need to choose their trading partners very, very carefully. And I think, uh, you know, you are seeing some rhetoric around, you know, old friends trading with each other as opposed to this kind of new world of relationships. I think we need to understand the big emerging economies of the world are the BRIC nations 
Brazil, Russia, India, and China. Um, and obviously having decent relationships with all those countries leads to prosperity and trade. And obviously Australia is the world's biggest quarry. Um, generally developing countries need steel um, and steel comes from really two places. It comes from Australia and it comes from Brazil, which happens to have all the iron ore and plenty of the coal. So the reality is uh, Australia and certainly the BRIC countries will continue to have a relationship because of what Australia generally offers to an emerging country. An emerging country needs steel. They need to build things. They need to go, holy shit, we don't have a train station. We need steel to make a train. We need steel to make train lines. Um, and of course, when you go to emerging countries, and I would say, you know, China has certainly emerged um, as a powerhouse. It's, uh, it's you know, no longer, um, you know, what it was and is certainly a different world to, to the world I first visited when I was 12 years old. I'll tell you about that. But, um, yeah, you know, at the end of the day, Australia provides a service to certainly a lot of these countries and will continue to do so. But Australia also needs to look after its own security interests and vested interests, and as part of that, it's uh, diversifying and it makes a lot of sense into other parts of the world um do i think china is this big bad global you know uh ruthless tiger oh look you know i'm sure there's all sorts of uh propaganda either way i don't really buy into you know the the big overarching uh you know conversations in the geopolitical space it's not my wheelhouse if you like but I will say, you know, the Chinese property market is has been caught in a bit of a, a problem. And certainly I think, um, you know, it has been in the news of late where there is a bit of a debt bubble on the amount of uh, real estate unsold in that marketplace. That has really been driven off the lack of urbanisation from movement of people caught up with COVID um, and I think really as part of also the aggressive policy of the Chinese government to create growth and bring much of its people out of poverty and into a more sophisticated economy and so to do that you spend lots of money you build lots of stuff, you give people lots of jobs and it's just part of the evolution in my view of that country's, uh, you know, space. And look, I went to China as a 12-year-old and now let's go back to what that year was. What year was, that was 1987, right? This is going back to the Tiananmen Square world, right? When, uh, you know, you famously saw the student stand in front of a tank. I mean, this was back then. And, you know, I went up there as a 12-year-old with my father who is, uh, you know, a, a great sort of pioneer of um, 
goods and services and buying things and he was teaching me all about uh, you know the marketplace of going to to Asia and finding something and bringing it back to Australia and then trying to put a mark up on it as a wholesaler and you know like people looked at me like I was an alien uh, people in the country had never seen a little white guillo before they were like wow who is this little white guillo man and you know they they like it was it seemed very very uh at the time uh limited there was no big tall buildings it was it was really a different place um i've subsequently been back to china and i've done a lot of property talks into china around urban economics and I've been to property trade fairs in China and spent a lot of times in different cities, Guangzhou, um, you know, Shanghai. And it, it is amazing. It is like, you know, beyond Australian cities with technology. It is incredible. If you've got a chance to go and travel through China, you will see the two worlds, the dichotomy of the rural and the uh, almost poverty of the rural versus the prosperity of the urban in the Chinese landscape. And they've got cities there which they've, you know, built, which are, you know, like Silicon Valley, right? And, you know, one thing that is quite, of, quite often hard to fathom for Australians is, you know, we have kind of two cities with over 5 million people being sort of Sydney and Melbourne in China, they have a hundred cities with over 5 million people. So, you know, they've got some big places and again, their birth rate having over a billion people, you can imagine just how many people are born that need properties that need homes. And of course uh, the big challenge in China at the moment is that the population, if you like, is actually declining a bit and the stock is, there's too much stock. And it defies kind of Australian logic, just how much stock that market is oversupplied. But we are talking around uh, 20% of real estate in China is actually unoccupied at the moment. That's around 50 million properties, 50 million properties. Now, in China, it's interesting because how they do it, and I've been to these kind of cities which they they almost like pre-build the city and then bring in the population. Um, what they'll do is they'll build buildings and complete them on the outside but not complete them on the inside. So you've got, for example, apartments that are just not fitted out. There's no new kitchen in them, bathroom, things like that. So they're kind of like concrete structures, if you like. And uh, because obviously it's a, it's still a communist or socialist uh, country, you know, uh, Xi Jinping famously quoted that property is for a roof over people's heads. And since really that quote, property investment has been on the decline, uh, inside of China and as such you've got this kind of double effect where the problem of these uh, oversupply of stock is going to take a little bit of time for the system to absorb it and 
One of the challenges is the amount of debt that a lot of the developers have taken on in China, which is so much more than, for example, local Australian developer debt or even debt in really OECD countries. Um, Debt levels here in Australia when it comes to developers borrowing money is actually quite low. Australia's developers, if you like, went through their debt ceiling in the GFC back in 2007 and 2008. Uh, how developers borrowed money was quite was far more reckless than it is today. And if anything, it was a bit of a free-for-all. You could get money quite easily. You could, uh, you know, pretty well go and borrow tens of millions of dollars to do a development. Um without that many checks and balances. And of course, this created a big debt ceiling for developers back then. And when I was negotiating deals back in that period, there was a lot of developers in liquidation. There was a lot of built stock, which was fundamentally in receivership. And it was very common for me to do receivership deals. I was out doing business with uh, not real estate agents, not developers, but accountants. Accountants had uh, projects in receivership and would sell at 30 40% off market value. Um, since the GFC, there were some rules and regulations to tighten up the development industry to almost make it impossible for a developer to go into receivership. And what that does obviously creates a stable marketplace where... Um, stock is not dumped on the market and you because of that kind of i guess policing policy of the banks to the developers it it, it today is is quite difficult to be a developer uh, because of the amount of equity you have to put in to run a development what that does of course is safeguard all of us that there is no major dumping of stock when there is an oversupply. And Australia had an oversupply 2014, 15, 16 into 17. Stock levels were quite high. And again, you never saw this like mass receivership problem in the marketplace because Australian developer debt levels were very, very low. Chinese debt level for developers, very, very high. Very, very high. Much higher than Australia. Um, and as such... I think uh, you are going to see a Chinese form of receivership. And really what that fundamentally means is you are going to end up in a place where um, the Chinese government will step in and no doubt have to command the economy because it is a command-led economy. And, you know, it's not really a Lehman Brothers end of the banking system is basically an uh, internalized problem inside of uh, the uh, inside of China, and as such, I think um, you know you uh, you will see bailouts from the Chinese government to prop up that system. Will it affect Australia? I don't think so. I don't think Australians really care what happens in China, do they? Um, you know, it's not really affecting the economy or the or the sentiment at this point in time. Um, so yeah, I don't, I don't see it as a major problem. Again, could be wrong. It's just my view. It's my briefing to you. You form your own opinion. Um, so 
Last question I think we need to get to is the APRA changes to lending and what impact that will likely have. Uh, certainly, I anytime APRA steps into the market, it does create a little bit of a cooling effect, which of, cur- of, of course um, can be a good thing. And if anything, I know this sounds counterintuitive, but slowing up the market would be not a bad thing for the market right now. Too much growth is not a good thing because too much growth brings a sledgehammer from the regulator in real estate and it really does almost create a stagnation of money moving. And so for me, I just much prefer good moderate levels of growth, consistent things like 5% rather than another 30% year of capital growth I know it creates a wealth effect, but it also creates a finance effect, which can be challenging um, to say the least. So what do I see next from APRA? Well, um, they'll be watching the market closely. And if it continues to be a runaway freight train, they will uh, continue to, to apply pressure to fundamentally slow it down. As it stands at the moment, um, basically, the serviceability calculator has morphed a bit, a bit. Now, basically, the best way to understand the serviceability calculator governed by APRA, it's kind of a fake interest rate. So we all know the cash rate is like so low at the moment, 10th of 1%. We all know we can go borrow money for like 3 3.5% as a property investor. What APRA then does to the banks is add a buffer to the ceiling of how people are calculated. So what that buffer does, it acts as a shock absorber should rates actually go up. So for example, if you can borrow money at 3% and and a bank is assessing you at 6%, it means that fundamentally, if you are approved to borrow money, um, you know, should the interest rates climb by three more percent, um, in theory, you should still be able to service the debt on that loan. So every time um, the prudential regulator steps in, it's not such a bad thing because we don't want loose cannons borrowing money who, if interest rates do move, they can't afford what is happening because then they dump the stock. So... The, the reality is we kind of have to love this kind of stuff and learn to appreciate what it is actually trying to do because good prudential regulations, in my view, uh, make smart economics. I don't like government meddling with everything. I think government, in some respects, is taking control of this whole economy. But when it comes to... Uh, not giving wackos money like my friend Pete who goes to the bolo to have a schnitzel or think the government is following him, uh, then, you know, it's probably a good thing. We don't need Pete getting more money because, uh, you know, it's a bit loose, right? So uh, what that obviously does is remove a section of, mar- of buyers from the market. And when you remove more demand from the market, it slows uh, the market down. Will this buffer change significantly changed the market? I don't think so. I don't think so. Uh, it uh, Certainly, the problem in the market is, in my view, not the demand, uh, not 
people's ability to pay debt, in my view, the biggest challenge in the market is the lack of stock or lack of supply. And so, um, you know, the, the fact that uh, we can't resupply the market with stock is probably the biggest challenge when it comes to curving price prices into the market. What's interesting though, when you even apply some ideas around serviceability, um, you know, this is why a good broker comes into their own, you know, like based on the recent serviceability calculation changes, which are pretty mild to be brutally honest, um, you know, you can see a variation between lenders of hundreds of thousands of dollars still. You know, we did some uh, initial calculations just based on um, a, you know, placebo basically client, them earning a certain amount of money, the new serviceability changes and what that fundamentally meant. And we ran it through around 30 different lenders. And, you know, it was it was so amazing to see the difference. Like you could borrow off uh, ANZ based on the calculations we did and using the different servicing calculators of every individual bank, uh, $462,000. By the time you got to the Bank of China, the Bank of China was willing to lend $748,000. Resimac, $700,000. Uh, Bank of Queensland, $680,000. And like you literally go through 30 different lenders and the, the results were staggeringly different. And I think uh, the lesson when it comes to APRA is despite the assessment rates quite often buffering and changing, really does, it's always going to be like this. It's going to be like this forever. Uh, the real estate market is going to need to be controlled because of like what is going to happen next. M literally, Australia needs 2 million migrants tomorrow and does not have one home to house them in. What that is going to do to the market is going to be so crazy that uh, – Certainly, I think you'll start to see the government pulling some strings to to play uh, to play the game of real estate with us, right? And there'll be good things and and less less fun things to work through. But this is why you need a team, folks. This is why you need a good broker, uh, good strategist, because you know real estate is just a game of finance, really, with uh, you know emotions and and uh, and regulatory concepts and property at the other end right hey i think we got through enough questions um i hope you enjoyed the show thanks for tuning in i'll catch you next time on the urban property investor thanks for tuning in to the urban property investor to never miss an episode make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite app or on youtube i would love it if you could give the show a rating and share it with your friends and family in between episodes, you can always keep in touch with me by connecting on social media over Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Until we meet again on the next episode of the Urban Property Investor, take care and bye for now.